being in a position that is awkward in a time in your life where maybe it's uncomfortable for you to be in, um, you know, like where you're like in the moment, you're like, man, I just want to get out of this position. I don't want to be here right now. You know, maybe it's a physical position. Maybe it's a position of just awkwardness in a conversation. Um, this week, I had a very awkward conversation in a bathroom stall. Very awkward. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with anybody in a bathroom. I was there washing my hands, cleaning up, and someone walks in, and they just have no problem just having a conversation with you. And I felt really uncomfortable, especially with talking. Like, even right now, I have a problem with it. But um, it's really an uncomfortable situation. And, and then that was just a kind of a conversation that we were in, and that was really uncomfortable. In Haiti, on the way over to Haiti, flying over, we had a layover in Fort Lauderdale, and we were very in a, in a, in a position of being uncomfortable sleeping. We had a layover, and, and my wife had a wonderful idea to figure out a way for us to sleep comfortably in the airport. And she thought, hey, let's go to Walmart and buy these rafts, those flotation devices, you know, and let's lay those on the ground, and we're going to lay on those all through the night. And they weren't comfortable. They were a whole lot better than sleeping on the floor. But just completely uncomfortable situation where we wanted just to kind of be out of that. That's not where ideally we'd want to be. But it's a situation that we had to be in, and so we made the best of it in that situation. Well, in life... There's other things that we could be in an awkward situation in, too. Like in a position in which you were like, I wish I wasn't in this position, but I'm in it. I want to make the best of it. And after you've gone through it, you're like, that wasn't too bad. You know, that was fairly rewarding. My wife and I, we were recently in Disneyland. And uh, some of you heard that story about us being there. And it was a great, great vacation. We were there for five days. And when we came home, we read up on, you know, what was the average distance someone walked in Disneyland? Did you know that the average distance is like seven miles per day? And that's like if you're doing the whole two-park thing. I mean, if you're going from California Adventure over to Disneyland, I mean, that walk in itself, I think, is just like one mile. But so we spent five days there, so do the math. So we walked just about over a marathon, almost in a half during that whole week. So we were dead tired by the end of the week. So on the way to Disneyland, we told our kids all about what was going to happen there. And we told them that at nighttime, there's these fireworks. It's unbelievable. It's like 4th of July every day there. And the kids were so excited about fireworks, as you can imagine. The problem was when we got there on Sunday night, we found out that fireworks during the non-peak season only happens on the weekend. So we pulled in on Sunday night and we got into our hotel room and we saw the glimpses of the last fireworks of that night. And so they were so excited for the week. And and we got through the whole week, and, and the kids were looking forward to fireworks. Well, we were only there until Friday, and there was fireworks on Friday night. But we knew that after walking 35 miles during that week, that we might not make the fireworks on Friday night. We might be a little bit tired and wanted to go home. We had a long drive ahead of us from L.A. down to Fresno, where my folks live, and we wanted to kind of get a head start on heading back to Oregon. So we knew we had to leave Friday night uh, before the fireworks. But we made a promise to our kids that they were going to see fireworks. So we made them a deal. We said, okay, at 8 o'clock, we're going to watch the final show. We're going to walk out uh, of the park, and we're going to just kind of see the glimpse of fireworks on the way home in the car. And the kids were kind of bummed. And I said, it'll be great. You'll walk, we'll walk towards the gate. You can look back and see them, and we'll get to our car, and we'll be the first one out. You'll, you'll see them. You'll, they'll be right over your head, and we'll get in the car, and we'll leave, and we'll be the first one out of the park. Well, we're walking down, you know, through Disneyland and leaving, you know, right by, uh, I don't know where it was, Adventureland or something, and we're walking towards the gate, and they just were having a hard time looking back and running into poles and people. And so as parents, we're like, you know, this, we need to change this. And so we made the promise, let's fulfill that. So we both picked up our children. My wife picked up Emily, five years old, 50 pounds. I picked up my son, eight years old, 80 pounds. 
kind of awkward, right? I'm carrying this eight-year-old kid and his feet are like dangling on the ground as I'm holding him through the park. But I carried him from Adventureland out to our car so my son could have a view of the fireworks. And so my wife picked up Macy, we walked out and we were tired. We were in a position of awkwardness. We were hurting, people were making fun of us, but our kids had a great seat for the fireworks all the way out there. And so they were in a position of an advantage, right? They were in a position of being able to see something amazing. And as parents, we were privileged to be able to put them in that position. And we kind of awkward, kind of tired at the end. But at the end of the day, our kids saw something amazing and were able to trust mom and dad that we were going to follow through with our promise to them of seeing fireworks. It's a lot like, um, you know, being with um, my, you know, it's being with a relationship with God. It's, there you go. You know, in our relationship with God, we have to trust him that he wants to put us in a position of seeing something amazing and being a part of something amazing. That's the partnership we have with God. We say, we trust you, God, for all things in life. And it's kind of an overarching statement. We say, Lord, no matter what, I trust you, no matter what, to fulfill the promises you have for me in my life. I trust you in that. And it's kind of like a a rainbow statement, right? It just covers everything. Jesus, I trust you. But we're going to discover tonight through the Bible that trust is not necessarily just a big rainbow, the overarching thing in our life, but it's really a moment-by-moment thing we have to say, God, I trust you in this moment, I trust you in this moment, I trust you in this moment, and still say, God, I will trust you in the future moments as well, but it's important for us to realize that every time we are faced with a circumstance that's insurmountable and huge and big, we have to physically and emotionally and spiritually say to ourselves, God, I trust you now more than ever in this moment that you're going to be there for me in this moment. Isaiah 40, 31, it says this. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. Kind of like my kids, right? 35 miles of walking all week long for little kids. That's a lot of walking. But at the end of the day, mom and dad picked them up and carried them. They were tired, they were weary, and we picked them up and they, we carried them. At times in our life, we, sometimes we just need to go to the Lord and say, we trust you in this moment, and we're just going to sit and trust you, God, and you will be my strength. Maybe tonight, maybe today, you need to remember God's faithfulness to you. God's promise to you that if you trust him and obey him, that he will do what he promises that he says he will do throughout the Bible. So it's kind of like um, God pays us and rewards us for being patient and waiting for him. Sometimes in our life, it's easier to make our own way. When a circumstance arises in our life or a situation or news we find out about our life comes up, sometimes as human beings, we make our own way and decide on our own, our own path, rather than trusting God and what he says he wants us to do. Matter of fact, I think that waiting is, is something that's not natural for human beings. I mean, as a kid, right, your parents say, hey, you know, when you get this job done, you'll get this, and they ask for whatever that is promised earlier than they actually deserve it. It happens all the time with my kids. I don't know about your kids, but they want what's promised to them now. I mean, immediately, And in our society in which we say waiting is worthwhile, waiting for the Lord for something is worthwhile, the blessings will come, we may escape that process and get outside of it and do it on our own. 
I mean, a lot of times I've seen couples who are getting, are wanting to get married, but, but move in together before that actually happens. And they, they, they stop that process of waiting for that day of their marriage to move in together. They're fast forwarding that based upon circumstances and living and very logical things. I talk to couples all the time about why they move in together and it's very logical. It makes sense. You know, financially, they need to find a place, two incomes together. Logically, it makes sense. But it makes no sense spiritually. That's why I believe waiting is a supernatural thing, not just a normal thing. Waiting's hard. Waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises to you is hard. But I promise you it's worth the while. It's worth the wait. I mean, we've done it even in our own marriage where God says, hey, you know, uh, you know, a vacation. Sometimes I'll fast forward. I'm, I want that vacation sooner, so I'm just going to throw that on my credit card. <laughs> and I don't want to wait for when I can afford it. I want to go do it now. And thank God I went through FPU and learned the dangers of doing that each and every time. Thank God for FPU, which is Financial Peace University. It's a thing we offer here at Evergreen. That's a wonderful ministry. It teaches you about your finances. But even in life, we'll go and throw it on the credit card way sooner than we should, and we'll be paying for that for a long time down the road. I'll say this again. Waiting is a supernatural thing. It's not something that's normal inside of a, a human being to wait for something. We want it now. So during our Bible teaching this evening, we're going to look at a circumstance and an event in the life of King David. King David had several different major events throughout his life that are fantastic and, and good to read. If you're going to do a character study, uh, read through the, the life of David, you'll find all kinds of gems and nuggets of truth about your life. But today we're just going to focus on, on one moment in David's life when he was young and how he trusted the Lord in a situation that was way bigger and way above his pay grade at that age. So here's the background. So at this time, there's a king, his name is Saul, and he was a godly man, followed the Lord. The Bible says in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel that he was a, a, a stout young man, very tall, taller than anyone else, very strong. But at this point in the story that we're looking at the life of King David, Saul, it says in the Bible, that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and he was uh, losing all confidence and all uh, assuredness in who God was. So the Spirit of the Lord left King Saul at this point in his life, and he's lost all confidence in, in God's leadership in his life. He's now doubting and not, no longer trusting God for the things that he once trusted God for at one point in his life. For a long time, Saul and his men would wake up early in the morning and, and, stay, and stand face to face with the enemy. And at this story in the Bible in the background here, this has been happening for 40 days and Saul's men have been challenged by their adversaries and people who were coming against them. And they were standing before them for 40 days, they would taunt them. And Saul and his army would be stuck in this situation day after day facing this giant the key element in the story here so far is that the key element that was missing in the life of Saul is his ability to trust God. Still a great leader, still the king of Israel, still had his calling, still had his authority over the army. But the key element that was missing in this situation in the life of Saul at this moment in his life, in this junction, was his ability to have confidence in his God. Same appointment, same calling, but without trust, the key element in which made him great in the beginning, he no longer is acting and doing. So we're going to look at this familiar story of King David facing the giant. 
It'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn there. If not, it'll be on PowerPoint behind me. If you have your phones, you can turn there as well. So we're going to lead. About, we're going to learn about this famous battle. Probably not just a famous battle in the Bible, but the entire uh, history of the world. This might be the most incredible battle scene that we've ever seen. David faced a very physical giant in Goliath, and at this moment, he's going to face something that's very intimidating. A guy that is huge. That in comparison to David, this guy would destroy him. And in our life. I want you to see the story of this giant possibly being in your life as a spiritual giant or a physical giant or a person that's in your life or a circumstance that you're facing. What is the giant that is in your life that you need to overcome? So we're going to look at David's giant killing skills, and we're going to see what we can pull from that story that we can apply to our life today and see how we can face our giants. Amen? Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 17. David lived by a simple principle that if he's going to defeat this giant, he had this attitude about himself. David had nothing to prove and nothing to lose. And if you look at King David's life over and over and over again, you see this to be true. That David had nothing to prove and nothing to lose. He had nothing to to impress anybody, not his dad, not the soldiers, not King Saul. He had nothing to prove to anybody in his family. Everything that he did was to to trust God in circumstances that that were insurmountable. So even as he stood in the battlefield, um, he was there under the authority and direction of God. So so King David was sent there to, to battle to this battlefield, not to battle the giant and not to be there for that moment, but he was, he was asked to go there to bring some food to his brothers. This wasn't even his battle to fight. And David is there in this moment. He wasn't there to impress anybody. He wasn't there to impress the Philistine army, not to gain popularity. He, already, he had already had that with God. You know, in the circumstances that, that he was facing, he was not the ideal person to go face the giant. The ideal person was the army to go face the giant or someone else, but it was not his job to go do. But, but you see David here, his willingness is because he has confidence in God. So why is David there? David had no business to be where he was at. His only business was there to deliver some food to his brothers because his dad told him to go do it. Matter of fact, I'm willing to say that David was pretty unaware of who Goliath was. Probably didn't understand how big he was. He maybe understood where he came from, which is the, a region in which giants lived, which is Gath. So you might have understood, okay, there might be a giant there, but he had no clue that the warrior, that Goliath was going to be there. He had one job, it was to deliver food to his brothers. So then why was David there? I was preparing my message this week, and we were over at McMinimum's Roadhouse having lunch, and I brought my daughter with us, and she's done with preschool now, and my wife and I were discussing this sermon a little bit, and I brought that question up. So why was David there? I mean, I wouldn't send my eight-year-old son, like Dave Jackson, to go middle of a, a, a war to go deliver food to someone. Why was, why was David there? My daughter says this. She says this in the moment. She's, and she was just overhearing our conversation. I said, why is David there? And she says, David was there because Jesus was there and Jesus is bigger than anybody. 
She was playing with her Barbies when she said that too. She had Ariel in one hand and a Barbie in this hand and she overheard a conversation. She says, Jesus is bigger than anybody. Back playing with her Barbies, you know. And I thought that was cute. But in reality, she's right. David was there fighting the battle because someone was standing there making a mockery of Israel and of God. Someone was making a, a public disgrace of who God was and no one was doing anything about it. So 1 Samuel 14, or 17, verse four through seven, it says this. It gives a very physical description of who Goliath was. It says, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose weight was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was about 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a, a weaver's beam. And his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his spear bearer went before him. David, here's a description that he gets from, from Goliath. Hey, David, you're going to go, this guy out there fighting right now, this giant, this huge guy, this is what he looks like, and this is what he's carrying with him. He was huge. He was about nine and a half feet tall. His armor weighed alone about 125 pounds. His spear weighed 15 pounds alone. His total weight that he was bearing upon himself was about 200 pounds carrying around. That was just his armor. And then verse eight, it says the guy was massive and he approached the battle line and he wanted to play a game called let's make a deal. He said to the Israelites, choose a man from you who you're gonna fight. If your man defeats me, we will be your slaves. But if I defeat him, you shall be the slaves of the Philistines. In translation, it says, I defy your ranks. If you're too chicken to send someone out, then your God can't be much better than you. And so he challenges Israel. He says, let's, let's challenge you, let's bring it out. And here's what the Bible said. For 40 days, Goliath did this. He would come out every day, say this, and defy the ranks of Israel for 40 days. And for 40 days, Israel put it up with this, and King Saul put up with this Goliath for 40 days. And to me, this is a story of our life when we put up with our Goliaths in our life for 40 days. When over and over again, our adversary comes against us and tells us how big he is and how massive he is and how insurmountable this news that you have is. And the circumstances you face, you can never succeed because this is too massive for you. And for 40 days, Goliath comes out and, and does this before them. And in our life as well, we stick around with sin and we stick around with, with opportunities that are out there and we stick with it and we hear about the, the dangers from it and we just let it exist and we do nothing about it. We just hear the report from, from the enemy and we live with it. We see a very different reaction from David. We saw Saul's reaction, which was to put up with the Goliath for that, for that army for 40 days and we see David come in with a very different approach. There seems to be a very sharp contrast between how these two leaders deal with this same situation. Again, one circumstance, two leaders, one leader who's full of faith and hope and trust in God, the other leader who's tired and wore out and the spirit departed from him. 
two different leaders who love at one time, one loved the Lord and one lost that love, and the other one who loves the Lord right now with all of his heart, his soul, and his mind, and his body. And we're going to see how they both approach the situation. You notice how Saul kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. A couple of examples of that in my life is I remember when I was young and young married, and I remember hearing a sermon about giving and tithing, and I'm like, oh man, someday I want to do that. Okay, Lord, someday I want to I want to give and I want to tithe. I really want to do it. Thank you, God, for my job. Thank you for everything. And I'm in Bible college, and man, I can't wait to give. And and I remember when I was the first opportunity for me to be able to give was years and years later. But I remember putting it off and putting it off until I was being able to couldn't be able to fully tithe. And I remember thinking over and over again in church service, I need to do this. I need to get my priorities right. I need to I need to get my finances right. And I'd put it off, and I'd put it off, and I'd put it off. Instead of saying, God, I trust you and I have faith in you and I'm gonna tithe and I'm gonna give biblically to what you're, what you're doing. And I wanna sow there, Lord God. And I remember also in the area of sin in my life. When sin would be in my life, I remember I'd put it off. I'm like, oh, I'll get better, I'll get better, I'll get better at this. And it would be constantly there and I'd just put up with it until one day someone goes, you know what? This needs to end now. This attitude, this anger, we need to address it now instead of putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. David was not intimidated by this Goliath. You see, David didn't go away to the Valley of Elah expecting to, to fight this battle. He didn't expect and goes, okay, I'm going there to bring food, but I'm also gonna bring my, you know, my gear and my weapons because I'm gonna fight this battle. I'm not there to do that. He went to go and deliver food, but he found out that he was going to fight a giant. Isn't that how it is in our life? We go through life expecting one thing, yet a giant appears when we least expect it, when we don't know about it, when it just appears in our life. It's out of nowhere, it's never convenient when a giant shows up in your life, is it? David more than likely had no idea who Goliath was. Great tips for us to remember that. Never assume that what worked for somebody else to defeat their giant will ultimately automatically work for us as well. If you remember what happens in the story, when David volunteers to go fight the giant, Saul instantly goes, oh, wait, hey, here's my gear. Here's my helmet, my sword, my shield. Here, put it on your little small body. You know, remember Saul, description, head taller than everybody, massive guy, takes his armor off. Do you remember David's description? Kind of a scrawny, rooty kid, you know, tall, slender, kind of like me. And then King Saul goes, here, go put this on you. And he can't even move in his armor. And Saul thinks, hey, if I just give you my armor, maybe you have a chance. Because this is how I would go battle Goliath with my armor on. So why don't you put that on? important for us to remember that when we go into battle, what works for one person might not work for the next. David came to Saul and asked permission to fight Goliath. In verse 38 and 39, David takes off the armor and decides to go battle Goliath his own way. Let me read this to you. It says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a cloak of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go. 
or had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. See, the element here is the point is that David did it the way God asked him to do it. He asked him to go fight that battle the way, the unique way that he wanted David to go fight that battle. And the one element that is common amongst all battles that we face, no matter what weapons we use or what we do to go overcome our Goliath, the one common weapon that we all have in mind and that we should use is trust in God. By this point in the story, David tells God how much he trusts him four times. Four times publicly he acknowledges before Saul and Israel his trust in God. That his trust was not in his slingshot or a sword or armor, but his trust was in the Lord and his strength. Verse 45 tells us that David and Goliath approached each other in battle with their own weapons. There's a lot of helpful methods out there to help us in life when we face our battles, you know, like ER and NA and AA, FPU. There's a lot of great strategies out there to overcome things in our life, our big obstacles, our big Goliaths in our life. And they're not bad, but I know and I believe that and believe in all those good things in life about the AAs and NAs and ER and, and FPU, all these great programs out there. The common denominator I find in all of those faith-based ones is that they have faith and they have trust in a higher power in Jesus Christ. That yes, there's methods and there's weapons and there's things to do in our life to overcome things in our life, and those are great, but we cannot neglect the fact that the number one weapon is faith and trust in God through those things. David expressed four times, like I said, his faith in God, letting Israel know, letting Saul know that his faith is in him. But finally, he defeated the giant because he trusted God in his own unique way. Remember the whole, the whole thing? He had the five smooth stones, and he cast them, and he struck down that Goliath. And I love this statement. We are to never underestimate the ability of a heart committed and trusting God. I don't, I don't pretend to know your circumstances in life and what you face. I don't understand your stories and I don't, um, I don't know them. But I know that if you have the ability to have confidence in God, to trust him in that circumstance, that God will have you become a victor in that moment. Trust in God, no matter what the story is. I don't care if it's a story of, of cancer or debt or divorce or what it is, but if you remain faithful and you trust God, God is with you to the end of that moment. No matter the outcome, no matter what happens in the circumstances, we are to trust God and find hope in that. Amen? A couple years ago, let's see, it was about 13 years ago now, my, I lost my mom to cancer. And uh, it was a hard circumstances. I was, I was 18 years old. I just graduated in May, and my mom passed away at, uh, in September of my, of my senior year, 1997. And that was a huge Goliath in my life. That was a huge moment in my life that I'm like, okay, I, I've got to fight this battle. And so I began to, to battle this Goliath and have faith and trust in God that he has an ultimate plan in my life. 
So for me, I, I left the Bible college and pursued God and fell in love with Jesus even more. I met some great friends, and I met a wonderful woman named Emily Shu at the time and got married. And the weapons I used and the, and the things I used in my life at that time were very helpful to me. And I got through that time of losing my mom and overcame it and became strong. Fast forward five years, now I'm married to that wonderful woman, and now she's Emily Hughes. And uh, we find a report that her mom is sick and has a tumor. And we're down in Los Angeles, and, and we're like, okay, Lord, what do you want us to do? And so we packed our bags and we moved to Oregon. And we moved here to this church and moved in with her, her parents. And within two weeks of moving here, her mom passes away of a heart attack in the middle of the, of the surgery that they were having. And so I began to talk to my wife a little bit about the weapons that I used to overcome my Goliath. And they weren't that helpful. My wife had to go through that circumstance in her life and battle the Goliath in her own unique way. And she did, and she battled it, and she came out through the other side of it, a strong person, loving the Lord, trusting God. Two circumstances that are pretty similar, but both of us did our battling in a different way, unique ways in which God asked us to, to do our battles. Even this week, there's been something I've been struggling with for about three weeks now, just kind of a sneaky attitude. And this week, God, I remember in devotions, asked me specifically to, to give up something very small and very simple. I said, what, what does that have to do with this? I said, okay, God, I trust you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give up this. And I'm hoping it affects this, but I just trust God that, okay, God, in this unique circumstance, I'm gonna trust you in this and see if it's gonna affect this over here. But God's gonna call you to do things that are unique, things that are specifically for you to deal with your Goliath in your life. So if you notice, I'm not here giving you the plan for that. It's for you to discover what has God called you to do to overcome those big Goliaths in your life. How are you going to trust God in those circumstances? I was on Facebook this week, and I saw this wonderful quote by uh, Edna Steele, a lady in our church. And she got this quote from Corey Tinboom. It says, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit there and you trust the engineer for the ride. That's our story of our faith in life. Is there's times where we're going through a tunnel, there's a time in life where we go through a circumstance where it gets dark. But it's in those times where we have to just sit and wait. And like I said in the beginning, waiting is what? Supernatural. It's nothing that that inner body wants to do. We don't want to wait. We want to jump off board as soon as it gets rough. In Psalms 125, it says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. And I love what Jesus says about trust. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. We need to start saying in our life, I'm going to trust God for that. I'm going to trust Jesus for that. When we hear a report about something in our life, we need to stop and say, I'm gonna trust God for that. When I go to someone's funeral who's lived a long life and who's lived a life that was filled with faith in following God, I love when they give the eulogy and they talk about that person. 
so-and-so loved the Lord and trusted him completely. So-and-so had faith and they believed in God. The person was 85 years old and they loved Jesus and they lived a life of faith. And it sounds like to me when I hear that story of just kind of a rainbow over that person's life, that their whole life was just peachy keen. They just trusted God for everything. That's how I picture it anyway. But in reality, it's more of like a, a freeway with stilts that are holding the freeway up. I remember a couple years ago, I went down to Louisiana for Katrina to help down there. And I remember going down the 10 freeway and it was elevated about, you know, I don't know, 50 feet over the ground and it was built on stilts because underneath it was all the marsh and all the water and, you know, all the, the swamp area. And it was the freeway, I-10 freeway built up in the air. And, and to me, that's kind of what I picture now when I look at faith is a road that's elevated amongst the messiness of life. And it's these pillars that are underneath that freeway of moment by moment, trusting God, a life built upon trust. When I hear about the old man who dies and he's 85 years old, loving the Lord, I begin to think about now the freeway, not a wonderful peachy keen rainbow, you know? Faith is about moment by moment saying, God, I trust you for that. And saying, God, in the future, whatever happens, I trust you there too. And I trust you in that one. And I trust you in that one.